Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact podcast for the service management and support industry. Brought to you by HDI, where service management and support professionals belong. Smarter service, better business, HDI. On the web at thinkhdi.com. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode 11 of SpotCast is an interview with Phyllis Drucker. Phyllis is Senior Consultant and Information Leader at Linium, with more than 20 years of experience in service management. She holds numerous industry certifications, including ITIL Expert and Verism, as well as being an international speaker and author. Phyllis is a recognized expert on the Service Request Catalog, and she was an early adopter of enterprise service management, first applying service management capabilities to HR, finance, accounting, and contracting in a shared service center environment in 2006. Since her first speaking engagement in 1997, Phyllis has helped to advance the service management profession of leaders and practitioners worldwide by providing her experience and insight on a wide variety of topics. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk today, Phyllis. Always a pleasure to talk to you. In a recent Support World article, you wrote about getting the workforce innovation ready. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what that means and can you describe some of the prerequisites to creating the readiness? Sure, Roy, it would be my pleasure. And, uh, you know, thank you for having me today. So, you know, as we talk about workforce innovation, what I'm really looking at is that technology is changing and organizations need the ability to both use new technology but also to support the changes. In that article, the precursors that I talked about were culture operating model and continuous learning. So from a cultural perspective, to be innovative, you have to have the ability to fail. You can't be in a blame culture. You have to have the freedom to try new things, try new technologies and fail at them. And, you know, I always like to get people back to Thomas Edison. We would never have a light bulb if he worked for a modern company that shut down his experiments, telling him he was using too much glass, would we? No, we would not. No, we would not. So you've got to be able to fail to be able to succeed in innovation. So that's the first thing is creating a culture of that. The other is the operating model. And operating models um, basically enable organizations to manage initiatives with the right policy standards and procedures. They give people a place in which they can work. And the Verism framework is a great primer on, you know, building operating models that work across an organization, not only involving IT. And that's what's so beautiful about it is the operating model can be an enterprise level operating model. And then the third one is continuous learning because obviously nobody knows anything about the new technology, right? So we've got to give them an opportunity to learn about every new technology that comes out, to continuously be training themselves in new frameworks, you know, to really have that culture that we always want to keep learning. That's one of the things that uh, HDI kind of prides itself on is providing the community with information through training and classes and that part of it, but also through all of the other things we do, including the podcast. So we like to keep people informed and educated. But you've got to give people time to do it, right? You've got to give them time to go to take advantage of those great opportunities that you're doing amazingly important and uh, a lot of organizations uh, don't and and as we know when there are budget cutbacks or changes in the economy usually the first thing that goes is training education right it's the first thing they cut 
That's so, right. So when we're talking about innovation, I, in, in one of your articles for Support World, you gave a lovely definition of innovation, just so people know what we're talking about when we say innovation. Innovation can be defined simply as a new idea, device, or method. However, innovation is often also viewed as the application of better solutions that meet new requirements, unarticulated needs, or existing market needs. So that's a, that's a really nice definition. Thank you for uh, including that. Well, and you know what? It's really funny because back in the old days, I worked for one of the largest dealership groups in the country, and um, they were a very, very innovative company. They were the first company that sold cars via the internet and other things. And I remember that IT was looked at as unnecessary overhead until we started selling cars over the internet and until we came up with a web portal that delivered a virtual desktop. And this was way back before virtual desktops were even heard of. And when we were able to do those two innovative things, it completely shifted how the business viewed IT. All of a sudden, we became a partner. So it's so important to have the environment that pushes innovation. You made a case there for also for something that a lot of folks in our line of work have been talking about, which is being a business partner, not just being a service provider, but really partnering with the business to find those new solutions and understand the needs of business units better and provide them what they need in terms of technology and innovation to move ahead. Yeah, and it took something, right? You know, it took uh, the head, some of the executives from IT going out to a dealership and buying a truck. And they looked at every aspect of the experience of buying a truck, from how long it took to do contracting, to how many pieces of equipment were on the dealership desks that they moved back and forth between. And that's where we started to build some of the things that we build, built for them and make those recommendations. But the first thing you have to become, be is educated about your business. The second thing you have to be able to do is operate your existing technology and services in a stable manner. You know, if everything is down all the time, they're not going to put more technology in. So we had to first clean up our act and, you know, we implemented ITIL and then clean things up from a stability standpoint. And then once IT was viewed as being able to operate our key strategic systems, then we were able to start talking about innovative ideas. So that's something for people to keep in mind. One of the uh, posts that I wrote about a year ago now on enterprise service management, one of the elements was making sure your own house is in order. That's right. Because obviously if it's not, the rest of the business, as you just said, is not going to trust what you're doing. You have to prove yourself uh, first. So that's, that's an excellent point, Phyllis. Thank you. And another point you made about going out to the business echoes something that I say all the time, which is ask the people who do the work. Go experience what it is that they do, understand what they do and what they're trying to achieve. And, and I don't think we can say that enough. Get out there and, you know, management by walking around. It came up with a recent interview I did with Pete McGarrahan. Same, same idea. Get out there and see what's going on and understand what's going on. Experience it yourself. It's so important. And Pete's great at that, right? You know. so he's awesome. He's a management by walking around guy. Exactly. So, you know, absolutely. And, you know, you have to be careful about where you're walking around, too. If you're building something for a field organization, you got to get out in the field. You got to go buy a truck at the dealership. You know, designing things in the corporate tower doesn't work either. 
So it's like exactly as, as you and Pete said it, go, go walk around and talk to the people who are going to use it. Which brings us to a, a very popular topic in, in our world these days, which is self-service. Many companies and organizations are struggling with adoption. And you've written a lot about building portals designed with, with the end user in mind. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's important and a little about how to do it? Sure. So, you know, the first thing is let's set the stage. Um, because I'm a consultant and implement tools for clients, I've seen a lot of service portals and I've designed a lot of service portals, probably more than most practitioners would design in a lifetime. So I, I see what works in them and I see what doesn't work in them and I talk to the users and do focus groups. So I've learned a lot out of having all of that experience. So the reason I think portal adoption is a problem is because we fail at portal design. So when I look at some portals and the customer is having trouble getting adoption for that portal, usually what I see is the portal itself is horrible. It might be, you know, um, very lackluster, no images, no, um, you know, really exciting things that you can do in portals nowadays. Uh, they're laid out in a way that's very IT-centric typically. They have language that's IT language. And, you know, I'll go back to my examples again, right? When Amazon started as a bookseller, yes, remember that. They used to just sell books, and Roy, I know you remember that. But, you know, some of our millennials listening may not. But, you know, when Amazon first started, people didn't shop on the Internet the way they do today. If they had created a shopping site that was made it difficult to find the book you wanted, they would they would have gone out of business and we wouldn't have the Amazon that we have today. They knew they had to design something that was attractive easy to navigate, and easy to buy from. And those are things that we should bring into portal design. When I talk to people, I say the first thing you need to do is go shop online. Shop Amazon, shop a department store website, and see how they build things. You would never go to Amazon and have an item called books and a bunch of drop-downs with every book that they sell. Yet people will put software in a catalog under a software request that's for every piece of software they offer. And then there's these 250 line drop downs that people find very difficult to navigate. So it's all in the design of the portal. And that's, you know, when you get down to it, that's why I wrote the book, you know, Service Management Online, Creating a Successful Service Request Catalog, is that I wanted to give people a guide to doing it right. I don't expect everyone to hire a consultant to build a portal. I want them to be able to learn, you know, from reading and certainly presentations at HDI conferences and some of the work that HDI does on, you know, webinars, podcasts, articles is a great forum for being able to share those ideas to where they can look at it. And then the last thing that's worth mentioning is um, because it's not in the book because it's really broke out after, which is digital design. For IT people that don't know a lot about designing a portal, they can engage their marketing department or people that are that know know how to design in today's digital design environment or, or UX environment. And it's really understanding the people that are going to be using the portal as personas, 
what their role is in the organization, how technology savvy they are, and then map the various journeys they'll take through the portal. And then when you start applying that to portal design, you start to get to, to a successful level. And I have seen these. I remember seeing one uh, the last time I was in the UK. There was a, a session on specifically on portals. And one of the examples they gave was for an advertising, a large advertising firm, an agency. And their portal was designed brilliantly because it included the type of images that they would look at the type of tools that they use. It was very cleverly done and it was all in the language that an advertising person would use. That's totally key. I'm 100% I'm on board with you there. Yeah, I can't give specifics, but um, I just saw a fairly nice organ navigational portal um, designed by someone. And what they did is their business is organized in a particular way and they literally organized the portal based on the way the business is organized. You know, if you think of like, even if I take it to dealership language, right? Because that way I'm not giving anything away. Um, when I look at the dealership, you have the, you know, selling of cars, servicing of cars and the back office. So if you designed your portal as sales, buy things, take care of, you know, service things, get services, you know, and support and, back office functions, you start to see how the enterprise could be organized into those three areas. So anytime you can bring something into business terms, you're going to have a much more successful portal. And I think it's important also in those divisions, you're, you're absolutely right. If you look at the enterprise and the areas that it's involved in and think of the portal as providing access to those different areas, Sometimes organizations don't think deep enough in that they will put up a portal and make the user, the end user, choose which way to go. And I think it's important to make sure that it's evident to them or give them some assistance in which way to choose. If there might be two or three different service desks they might have to approach for various things that, that they need. And we'll you know, talk a little bit about HR and IT and maybe facilities and some other areas of the business. But don't make the user choose like the difference between an incident and a request. They don't have right. to know that stuff. Um, just you know, guide them along. I think that guidance is important as well. And you know what? That's where the journey maps come in. Because if you were organized, if your portal was IT, HR, and facilities and legal, let's say, and you asked a hiring manager, where would you go to onboard someone? You watch what they pick because you have to understand how they view onboarding. And when you make them choose between IT, HR, facilities, and legal, all four of those providers get involved in onboarding. So that's where when you start building your portal by silo, it starts to get a little dicey. If you had employee and manager services or hiring people as a navigation, those are places you could go to do all the things that you do to onboard someone. So, you know, it really, it gets, it really gets interesting, but that's where the journey mapping comes in. If they always go to HR, then you don't have a problem, right? You put it in HR and you open the tickets to IT facilities and legal as needed. I think that this is one of the areas where emerging technologies, including AI, but not exclusive to AI, which is, you know, most people use AI when they really mean automation or some other things. 
how can those emerging technologies help here uh, and guide people maybe in the right direction or guide the people who are responding to requests in the right direction? Well, yeah, there's two different topics there, and I love both of them. In fact, I think I presented at some conference or another last year about um, AI and bots, and, and I've certainly done it at HDI. Um, you have, you know, the chatbot capability that's now available in some of the portal uh, technologies is phenomenal. And it doesn't necessarily have to be very difficult to set up. So there's a couple of things about chatbots, and we use them all the time. Um, I went to a, the Microsoft website once because my Surface wouldn't boot up, and a pop-up came up um, asking if I needed some help, and I said yes, and what's your problem, and I typed in the issue, and I got an answer that said, hold down the power key for 10 seconds, release it, and then hold it down again until it comes up, and it worked. It was actually a chatbot, and it looked like someone was engaging in a chat session with me. That's how well designed it was. So a couple things about putting chatbots in place. The first is you don't want it to appear that it's a chatbot. So if you can give it a name, and even if you can randomize names that show up, um, that's one thing. So, you know, Sam is asking you, are, are you having a problem with, you know, what can I help you with? And then when the chatbot runs out of scripting or knowledge, you have to have a really graceful handoff capability. So something like, that's not something I'm going to be able to solve for you. We need a technician to come work on your computer. Let me open a ticket for you. Or, you know, I'm not experienced enough to answer your question. Would you like to get me to someone who can help you? And then you can send that chat to, a, to an agent, a service desk agent, who's doing virtual chat. So that technology gives you the full round trip and you don't even know you're talking to a virtual agent or a chatbot. The thing about chatbots is they require knowledge in a knowledge base. They, they're based on, they, they search the knowledge for the customer. So that means you have to have a good knowledge strategy. So, you know, the KCS training that HDI offers is a great way to get started there, right? So that's one. The second piece is you've got to script them. So what we did with one organization is as we were building the items in their service catalog for HR services, we also scripted the virtual agent as part of the whole process of designing the catalog experience. So, you know, we were building something, let's say we were building something for onboarding. We built all the scripts for the chatbot related to onboarding, and we made sure that all the right knowledge articles were in place. And we did that graceful handoff. So all that's the first part of your question. Let's stick on that one for a minute or two, and then I'll move over to artificial intelligence and predictive analytics. Just that uh, you, you've reinforced something that so, at least some of us have been talking about for a while, which is that in order to empower these emerging technologies, it is so important to get your hands wrapped around knowledge management and and data management too is know where things are and be able to point these technologies in the right direction and have things organized in such a way that it makes it easy for the technologies to access them and pull up the right things that's right you got to do the basics you know yeah. if you if you look at the portal knowledge is probably the number one thing that's going to sh help people shift left and not have to put an agent talking to a person but then knowledge becomes the thing 
that the chatbot can search to do the same thing, but for the people that resist doing it themselves. And interestingly enough, in our research, we've seen knowledge management become more important in the eyes of the people who respond to our industry surveys each year. Yep. And so it makes perfect sense that the, those things really go together. And you know what's interesting? It's not the same in IT and HR. When I walk into HR organizations, they generally have really robust knowledge. It may not be in a really great knowledge-based product. You know, it may be on a, a website that people have to search for the right thing, but they've written the knowledge. So getting that now put into an actual knowledge base is, can be very easy depending how they what format it's in. But, you know, they at least have the knowledge collected. IT seems very far behind HR. If I look at it um, anecdotally across the industries I've gone into. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it makes perfect sense if you think about it because HR is so wrapped around legal issues yep. uh, and language itself that uh, you want to make sure that you're saying the right thing in the right place at the right time and you want to make sure that you're saying it the right way so that knowledge becomes exceedingly important to HR. Now, IT, I think a lot of times those of us who maybe started off in technical support or just the techie side of things like to be creative and and so we need to we want to rethink every time we're presented with something right well, yeah but and it's funny because the first client that adopted virtual technology you know the virtual agent technology with us was actually an HR organization it was an HR well not an HR organization it was an educational company but it was their HR um, organization that went live with virtual agent before any IT organization that I've worked with and as I mentioned earlier, HR is really at the top of the heap of, of business areas yeah. that are adopting enterprise service management. So they've really, really decided that partnering with IT and getting into service management more is a really good idea. Yeah. So and now if you move out of chatbots into predictive analytics, it's a little different because with chatbots, you've got to have the knowledge and the scripting. If you have a tool that does predictive analytics, you just have to have been working in the tool for a period of time. So, you know, um, the product I work with most says 35,000 tickets to build up uh, the Watson capabilities enough that Watson can predict a trend from what's in the system. And we've, they've been including Watson's, IBM Watson style predictive analytics in products. Uh, probably for four or five years, I think it five, probably that long ago that I saw it at a conference on, you know, one of the tool demos. And at that time, the problem was they didn't have the use case for it. So what I started seeing at last year's at the Service Management World Conference last year is the tools that offer predictive analytics now have some really compelling use cases. And aside from the ability for an event to get logged, for it to search incidents and see, hmm, every time an event like this is logged, we open an incident and assign it to this group, and it's considered a critical incident, so I also bet a page or text this person becomes a real big use case for predictive analytics. So that's one. The other one that the vendor showed me was um, change management. Every time when we do this kind of a change to this CI, our success rate is this percentage. 
So now I can adjust risk of that change based on prior history with that change. So that's two applications I saw demos of that I thought were really compelling. The tools have it. I think it's up to, you know, this is where we come in, right? As speakers, writers, um, this is where we come in, in in setting up some of those compelling use cases. Oh, I think I see a service management world topic for myself. There you go. And and that will be enjoyable, no doubt. <laughs> and speaking of predictive technologies and analytics and, and conferences, uh, one of your sessions at HDI 2019 Conference and Expo is called We've Been Hacked, Why Security Needs All Hands on Deck. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. How should security ops be integrated into IT service management? Well, the first thing is a little story. It's a story about implementing security operations, vulnerability management, you know, tool for a client. And we get to the point where we're trying to hook up vulnerability management, you know, the basically pulling in the potential threats and being able to know which ones you need to mitigate. And we start trying to hook into the CMDB. And the CMDB owner is like, well, what are you gonna do with my CMDB? What do you mean I have to have everything in the entire enterprise in my CMDB? I have to go global and I have to go to the desktops? What do you mean? So let's look at what we mean. There's, there's two aspects of security operations. So the first is the breach prevention, which is taking the databases of known threats and managing the vulnerabilities that they expose. So in order to manage the vulnerability, you first have to know, do you have that environment in your infrastructure? So if I've got a vulnerability in the Linux world, if I don't have any Linux servers or Linux desktops, I don't need to worry about it. Well, how do I know if I have a Linux desktop or server if I don't have a CMDB and if the CMDB doesn't include desktops and operating systems? So that's number one. The second piece is security incident management. If a breach does happen, and it if, let's stay with Linux, and it involves a Linux vulnerability, how do I find the machines that I need to go segregate, take offline, you know, reformat, address, if I don't know where they are. So when you think about SecOps versus IT service management, IT service management owns the CMDB, and SecOps is one of its really big consumers. But they live in two divisions, because typically you've got your CIO and your CISO or chief information security officer in two separate silos and they operate separately. So it's it's the big deal of, you know, it starts at the top. We've got to break down that silo at the leadership level and the teams need to be fully integrated. They can report to different people, but their activities need to be fully integrated. And when you look at ITSM, there is an information security management process that lives in service design and it is where SecOps lives in an ITSM world. It's just that we don't implement like that. There are places for them to come together, but they just don't because they live in different silos. So that's what this is about. You know, th this presentation is about. Phyllis, it has been an absolute pleasure having this opportunity to have a little interview time with you. 
And yeah. uh, I'm looking forward, of course, to seeing you at HDI 2019 in Orlando and talking with you there. But uh, thank you very much for being with us on SpotCast. Thanks so much. It was, it was really my pleasure. And, you know, Roy, I love talking with you. Thank you for listening. For more about HDI, visit us on the web at thinkhdi.com and see Support World for great content. I'm Roy Atkinson, your host for SpotCast. Until next time, take care. Meanwhile, send us a tweet with the hashtag SPOCCAST, SPOCCAST. We'd love to hear from you.